1973, a group of indigenous artists formed a collective. The press called them the Indian Group of Seven. Their goal? To raise the profile of indigenous art. It was all or nothing. We're representing all our people. And create a permanent space in galleries for indigenous artists in Canada and around the world. That was really a rock star moment for me. I'm Soleil Lunier, and this is Among Equals, the history and legacy of the professional native Indian artists, Inc. Listen wherever podcasts are heard. Art Slice is a different dive into art history. We goof around, we curse, you learn from it, but don't expect a typical lecture. You're welcome. Hey listeners, Stephanie and Russell here. We just wanted to let you know that you did not miss Hilma Part 2. It is on the way. We just decided to push its release back a few weeks since a whole month of Hilma is a lot of Hilma. But not, but actually not on enough Hilma, in our <laughs> opinion. So don't worry, we have a great episode here for you today, and you have some more Hilma to look forward to in the future. All right, on with the show. Bon appetito. You wake in an empty hotel room to the sound of the coffee machine percolating. You're fully rested, a feeling you haven't felt in months, maybe longer. The smell of stale coffee has filled the room and the sun is peering through the sheer curtains. The architecture is vague and it's hard to place the decade the hotel room was constructed in. What is this? A U.S. riff on European modern? The temperature is perfect. Everything is crisp and clean, and you wonder how you didn't untuck the sheets or dent the pillows in your slumber. The bathroom mirror is crystal clear. There's not a smudge, fingerprint, or speck of dust to be found. As you inspect the mirror, you realize it's not reflecting your image, but instead, the sky through the walls and the ceilings that encase you. It's curious, but you don't question this. As you stare through the mirror into the static outside world, where the only movement are long cast shadows gliding across the concrete in short loops, you count. One Mississippi, two Mississippi, three Mississippi, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, eleven, twelve. When you're done counting, they skip and reset to their beginning point, to their beginning point. Every shadow moves in choreographic sync. You reach for the hotel room door, but you find only wallpaper, Instead of panicking, your mind clears of anxiety. It's a placeless place. What can you do? You sit on the sunny hotel terrace, seemingly the only soul in this city. You pour yourself a cup of coffee until your own loop stops and resets. 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 Until your own loop stops and resets until your own loop stops resets until stops loop stops and resets welcome to art slice a palatable serving of art history i'm stephanie duenas and I'm Russell <laughs> Shoemaker. What is that? What's what? What are you doing? Listeners, Russell has a... <laughs> Russell has a nectarine... Well, it's a white nectarine. It's a... I'm sorry. 
<laughs> he's got two little wooden giant toothpicks. No, you don't. You don't see those. We don't. Those are invisible. <laughs> okay. Okay. So we have a floating white nectarine floating, like in quotes. Are you? Are you mimicking? It's, it's called. It's called cosplay. I'm cosplaying. Cosplaying. Okay. Cosplaying. Excuse me. Are you cosplaying the Son of Man by Renee Magritte? <laughs> I thought you were joking, but literally the longer you stay quiet, the more I actually believe that the white nectarine has become a part of your face. Okay, you are way more on point with today's vibe than I realized. So, speaking of vibes, weird vibes, today we'll be discussing Renee Magritte's painting, The Unexpected Answer. It is oil on canvas from 1933. And how a specific painting. <laughs> oh my god. Okay. Shit. Okay. All right. So how a specific painting by Giorgio de Chirico uh. called The Song of Love, also oil on canvas from 1914, influenced Rene Magritte and a group of kooky artists that you may have heard of. Mm, the Surrealists, maybe? A drop my nectarine. <laughs> and as always, we will be discussing a lot of images today, and we highly recommend checking them all out on our website at artsizepod.com and sign up for our newsletter while you're there, or some <laughs> of the images on our Instagram page at artsizepod. You lost your nectarine. Yeah, well, there's fruit it's juice all, all it's over all the bread. table now, so let's go clean this up. Yeah. So Stephanie Renee, as a child, he and his friends are running through this long underground graveyard vault, which to picture this listeners, imagine a winding claustrophobic hallway. On either side of you are shelves and shelves of engraved concrete tiles uh-huh. that are filled with caskets. Oh no. Oh no. No? Well, young Renee is <laughs> running through this. It's a transient experience. It's mm. dark. It's humid with a musty smell that just takes your breath away. Oh god. And I'm sure there's like cobwebs stuck to him, you know. Oh my god. <laughs> like no. his eyeballs, That's his the, ears, his little nostrils. The worst. And as he runs out of this underground crypt, it's like running out of a subway system. Okay. Because when he makes his way out, Stephanie, he is met with tall and crowded forms, above ground tombstones and towering mausoleums that crowd the sky, occupying basically every place within the graveyard but the narrowest pathways. Kind of like a graveyard city block. Okay, I see. I see what's going on here. So he's running through these city blocks. He sees stone angels on his left, broken headstones to his right, and then he turns a corner and runs into an adult. Oh, Oh, okay. Okay, that's it. Well, like, oh no, like now he's in trouble. Or, oh no, now the, like, fantasy's over. (laughs) This dude is painting on a canvas and easel in the middle of a graveyard in the shade of the tombstone skyline. Ah, okay. Here's this painter who is recording the graveyard surface, right? Answering the question, what did the graveyard look like that day? Okay. But the surface wasn't just the surface, and Renee had just come up from the underground vaults, so he knows that there's more to it than what you can can just see from this point of view. So Renee knows something that the painter doesn't know. Yeah. Painter's trying to get the gist of the graveyard. He's into what he's seeing just in front of him. He's not seeing the whole picture. Well, he doesn't have the experience that Renee just had of like running through the underground. He's not seeing the unseen. Okay. And below (laughs) the soil, time has stopped for the dead, but the ecosystem is still thriving. The trees, the grass, the plants, the worms, the insects, Mm. even the lichen and moss on the tombstone, everything is just alive and thriving in this Mm. environment. 
Even before this experience, young Renee had been drawing. In fact, a lot of people think that Renee actually made up this whole story about the graveyards. God damn it. Okay, well, we'll, we'll just say that we think he embellished it a little <laughs> I'm bit. sure it didn't come out of nowhere. He did grow up in Lacine, Belgium, where old historic buildings met gardens and graveyards and cobblestone streets. And so many of the streets, like the graveyards, kind of wind and bend and twist, and you never really know what's around the corner. Young Renee was filled with creativity and curiosity. His father enrolled him in art lessons and he immediately took to them. His father was a suit tailor and he just would super duper brag about how good Renee was at drawing, that he would actually sell his drawings to his clients. <laughs> Not biased at all. He's like, You want to buy my son's drawing here? As he's Fre- like, Frederick. As he's measuring the good. inseam. Yeah. He's <laughs> like, Because if you don't, bump. Just like accidentally <laughs> bumping it, you no. know? Like, yeah, no, I'll buy one. Oh, my gosh. Okay. Poor Frederick. He's got, like, all these dumb drawings of, like, a little house that says mom, dad. Okay. (laughs) Stop. All right. I'm sure he was better than that. All right. So while his father was a tailor, Renee's mother made hats, which I only mention because if you're even a little bit familiar with Renee's work, bowler hats and suits, Mm. they show up a lot. It was around this time that young Renee started reading fiction by Edgar Allan Poe and, most interestingly... Lewis Carroll Hmm. of Alice in Wonderland. Two kind of spooky, (laughs) kind of out there writers for the time. Like Alice, for example, she experiences this bizarre world by stepping into her reflection from a mirror in her living room and nothing is as it seemed in her everyday life. Right. Her reflection was false. Reflection was false. Yes. Okay. He also actually happened to love going to the theater and he at times would actually craft miniature stages to play with. So as with so many formative influences, you don't always know why you're interested in something, right? Like those little theaters or how it's going to change you as an artist. What? Graveyards. Graveyards, right. Through the Looking Glass by Lewis Carroll, for example, we don't know exactly when he read it, but it really spoke to him. And we know because we can see it in all of his work. It becomes part of his creative DNA from here. So Renee grows up. Mm -hmm. He takes those drawings. Mom, dad on, you know, on the (laughs) lawn with the house. Okay. And crayon. The ones that his father was pushing on his clients as he measured their inseams. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As he's bumping their inseams. And in 1916, he heads 30 miles from his hometown of Lacines, Belgium, to Brussels to begin his studies at the Academy Royale des Beaux Arts, which is still an art school to this day. Oh, okay. The work he was making at this time was just basically regurgitating Impressionism, Futurism, Cubism, all the hot artisms of the day. (laughs) And Rene, he actually described this time at the school as unremarkable. Really? Yeah. Okay. Uh, Which is weird. I mean, is it because the city was also being occupied by German soldiers? Could be. Could be. Just a couple years prior, events were happening rapidly in Austria, Hungary, and just 80 miles away from the capital of Brussels in Germany. Does that sound familiar? 
Yes. Well, World War I was a lot of firsts. New technology was created to kill. So if you remember the Detroit industry murals, Diego depicted scientists crafting mechanical and chemical warfare that mm. the world had yet to see. That's right. That was what they saw in World War I. Right. And the Belgians, knowing the Germans had those machines, were not fucking around. They stood down, handed over their waffles, <laughs> and allowed them to occupy their country. Oh, that part's not funny. You know, it probably saved a lot of lives. Mm-hmm. And life since they allowed them to just occupy the country. Right, no would, fight. Yeah, it would go on with some normalcy. But the Belgians, of course, did suffer if they decided to stand up to the German soldiers, right? Yeah. So they would face prison time or execution. And of course, the newspapers were completely censored. You know, there's just a headline that says, everything is fine here. We just got taken over by the Germans. Yes, we're giving our waffles away. Fine. It's totally fine. We are not German speaking for oh you. <laughs> Two years later, as his education is coming to a close, Brussels is just in chaos, right? So the Allied forces had arrived, Belgium was freed, and then refugees everywhere were fleeing to Brussels, including the German soldier Stephanie. They didn't want to return to their country, which was basically in shambles at this point, oh my right? They'd been bombed to death. So on their way to Brussels, they're throwing off their military-issued lederhosen, trying to blend <laughs> in. Oh, I okay. like waffles very much. Thank you. This Kraftwerk album, I have I've never heard of them. <laughs> Who are they? Uh, Renee. <laughs> doesn't write about this as far as we know, right? Even if he was shielded from most of it, most of the war going on, he had to question what can you trust and, and like who can you trust? Even something as simple as buying bread from like the baker, right? Like he must have yeah. crossed soldiers on his way there. But even then, you didn't know which Belgians you can trust, right? Can you trust <laughs> your neighbor? Can you trust your best friend? You know, yeah. maybe maybe the baker befriended some of the Germans so yeah. that his or her shop could stay open. Yeah, his little baker outfit kind of opened just slightly in the wind and you see a little lederhosen underneath it. <laughs> no, 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 no. I no. knew it. No, no, no. His accent was very convincing, just like mine. I mean, that that at least you had like a visual. I don't even think they had that. So you had to just <laughs> pretend that everyone just had to pretend that it was fine. So yeah. you just... But... I mean, there was a lot of theater going on. We'll call it theater. Okay. So World War One certainly was a turning point for artists all over Europe. Even artists who fought for the German forces were affected by the war in both indirect and direct ways. Mm-hmm. So this would lead to movements like... Dada, which questioned authority like the authorities that led people to war in the first place. German Expressionism, which grappled with the trauma of war. And the Bauhaus, not the Bow Wow House, Stephanie. Oh, okay. okay. Which sought to build a functional, utopic society from the ashes. And ultimately, Surrealism, which sought to free the subconscious mind in order to break from societal conventions. As uninspired as he was in art school, Rene eventually graduates, and while he doesn't immediately jump into a fine arts career, he does fall somewhere adjacent. In 1922, he begins working at a wallpaper firm and eventually moves on to be a graphic designer. He is still working on his art at this time, and he actually starts to mingle with other artists in Brussels. Then, one day, Rene sees a reproduction of a painting by Giorgio de Chirico called The Song of Love. From 1914, which supposedly, according to lore, brought him to tears. He has been quoted as saying it was, quote, one of the most moving moments of my life. My eyes saw thought for the first time, end quote. The ground is black. 
you look up and see a giant floating statue head of a young man separated from the rest of his statue body. He does not notice you. He gazes past you as he floats by the side of a building. Then you realize that the back half of his head and neck are missing, as if his head was a magnet on a fridge. To your right is a shiny glove equal in size to the head, possibly made of rubber, nailed to the side of this building next to the head. You suddenly notice a large ball or sphere of some kind sitting in front of these two objects. Was it there this whole time? You look up and see, far off in the distance, a train behind a brick wall, letting out a big puff of smoke polluting the air. To your right, past the head and glove, you notice a very nondescript building, no frills, with a couple of arches, possibly a part of a longer arcade, but you can't seem to turn your head to look. You don't know where you are, You don't know when this moment is taking place. It could be any time. Yesterday, last week, last year, 100 years ago, you finally notice the sky. It's late afternoon on a clear day, no clouds. The shadows coming from the arched building stretch past the head, glove, and ball. And no color. Right. No color. Right. No color, listeners. I have described this to you without mentioning any color, which is the way that Renee saw it. He saw reproduction. So without knowing what color anything is, there's already a strangeness to the composition in more ways than Mm. one. So subject matter, composition, and then just the overall eeriness. Do you think this is the sign of a good painting? We can talk about what good means, but like a strong (laughs) painting? Strong painting. Because we rely on color for a lot of things. We do, but this is true. Many people don't see color. A lot of people don't see all the colors. So is it a strong composition without color? I think in this case, it looks like it will be because it is more illustrative. If it wasn't as illustrative, it was more painterly, you might lose a lot of that nuance once the color is gone. Right, like if it was an impressionist painting. That makes sense. Yep. That makes sense. So let's color this in, shall we? (laughs) All right, so let's start with the head. So the floating head is like a neutral pale gray, Mm. like a marble statue would look like in the warm late afternoon sunlight. The glove is a terracotta red and it looks like it could be made from leather now to me. It it doesn't look like rubber so much anymore. Hmm. The ball or the sphere is is green. So that puff of smoke from the train is white and it looks extra crisp now against the cerulean blue sky that gets deeper as we continue up the composition. And while the ground is an asphalt black, it looks more blue, almost navy to me. Now the colors of the buildings are very muted, like earth tones. I was actually expecting this to be much more colorful. Why? Maybe that's just how I saw it. Maybe it's the the benefit of having like something that's black and white. You see the contrast more, so you think the color is going to be sharper. Are you saying you're disappointed in the color version? No, not necessarily disappointed. It's just, I don't know. It just wasn't exactly what I expected. Interesting. Yeah. All right. Also... Also, sorry yes. to interrupt. What is going on with the with the figure's ear? What about the ear? Do you not see it? It's like disappearing. It's like turning the color of the the wall behind it. Really distracting. Oh my me. god! <laughs> it's really distracting. Oh my god! Me. What is going on with that? Did he mean to do that? Ew! <laughs> Ew! What happened? I don't know. It's like he's got a growth there that's just been cut off. This looks like. It's a ceramic head. Your, your hand kind of slipped and it kind of Oops. <laughs> it kind of deformed it. Got, oh got goad. He got goad. Um, what? He got goad. <gasps> Van Gogh? Yeah, he got Van Gogh. He got goad. <laughs> oh my God, um, no. Or gah, um, Boy, shut up. As the TikTok kids tell me. No, stop. Anyway, it kind of looks like a magnet on a, on a fridge. Somebody dropped it. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Wait, it, they got it on sale. <laughs> yeah. 
It's on the discount side of the tchotchke booth. All right, so the tones are more muted, like Russell said. So the buildings, though, they have no frills. They're just as boring as they were in black and white, in my opinion. They have no adornment that might even hint as to what time period these may have been built. No clue. It could have been yesterday. It could have been 10 years ago. It could have been 100 years ago. Mm -hmm. It could be tomorrow. I don't know. What is obviously here, what's very present, is a feeling uh, of, like, strangeness. It doesn't really matter if it's black and white or color. There's just this nagging sense of, like, oh, I don't know, like, oh, like some eeriness. I don't know. I'm just, like, shuddering. Yeah, exactly. Just like that, Russell. Do it. Do it again. (laughs) So this weirdness, Russell is probably due to this idea of Stimmung. 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 Yes. yes. So this, this is the German word for an atmospheric mood that is present, but everyone mm. experiences it differently. There's there's no, like, English. Did you hear that, listeners? Now you can insert the word Stimmung into your conversations with friends. Give us an example, Russell. Please give us an example. Um. Wow, you really put me on the spot here. <laughs> no, let me think. No, I got it. I got it. it. I got it. I got it. <laughs> I don't got it, actually. All right, we'll role play. No. Okay. Hey, Russell. How's it going? Um, well, it's pretty good. It's pretty good. I got I got a cup of coffee here because, uh, you know, I'm just feeling, I got the I got the, the, the downsies. I'm feeling the shing moon today. Oh, is it because it's raining outside? Yeah, it's Wait, raining outside. Wait, what's shing moon? No, we both experienced shing moon. I mean, we wouldn't be talking about shing moon unless we both experienced it simultaneously and understood it, even though we had separate perspectives. So we're both experiencing it. I don't know what shing is, but I'm still experiencing well, now, now it. Now you know. Yeah, oh, yeah. Okay. We're both experiencing it. There's not an English translation for it. Sting moon. Okay. Do you know this because anyway. you're German? I do. Schumacher? Yeah. yeah. Okay. The atmosphere. <laughs> So anyway, the Stingmung atmosphere, however you say it, it's it's I think it's the stillness in this painting, the, mm-hmm. the silence in it. The paintings put you in the position of being an outsider looking in or as a voyeur. But the longer you look at his paintings from this period, you start to feel like you are being watched. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So you're the one being voyeured. Are the statues staring back at you? Are these just like empty movie set facades and the mm-hmm. crew is on break? Like, where are you? Yeah. It's funny how even the train, which, you know, is loud. Mm. I don't feel like I hear any sound from it. I feel like my ears are plugged. Yeah, this because it looks this. like a child's drawing. It's probably one of those drawings <laughs> that Renee did when he was a kid. Okay. Maybe, hey, maybe his dad was his ta- was DeKiriko's tailor. Oh my gosh, shut up. He's like, uh, uh, like but you're gonna buy this, right? Okay, <clears throat> listeners, Russell is like... Oh, let me just measure this again. He's just oh, kind of bumping slipped. his elbow up into the air. Like, oh. Yeah. So the statues and shadows and objects in this work, he painted these seemingly disparate objects together, which makes you want to seek out a connection between all of them, especially because they don't seem like they're related. So even though he may not know why he's even drawn to painting those particular objects... He places them in these empty spaces. Well, and if you think of painting in this time period, you're used to seeing paintings tell you something. Like this is a narrative or these are family members that are sitting next to one another. Or this is an event in history. Or an event in history. So you're supposed to find connections between objects and people in the frame. So this is inverting that because there might not be connections. Or maybe I shouldn't say there might not be connections, but you're kind of forced to find your own connections. Right. But we're able to recognize what the objects are. Things are not adding up because there's a sense that something is wrong. And there's kind of a thrill to that. Mm. And one of the reasons why you might be getting that feeling is because it looks like a movie set. It looks yeah. like we're looking at a movie set. And Akiriko doesn't have a strong sense of style either when it comes to actually painting on the canvas. Mm. 
Right, not a lot of brushstrokes are visible, but he does show his style with this claustrophobic composition, with architecture that looks very menacing, it doesn't look Mm. friendly. Objects are skewed, they're not the correct sizes, their placement is odd. There are also multiple sources of light, and the perspective is off, right? Mm. So just look at the giant glove compared to the flat train in the background. Yeah. I think it's all intentionally here to make you feel disoriented. It's very hallucinogenic, it's very dreamlike. Yes, dreamlike. So in these works, DeKirko is creating a dreamlike world that doesn't quite add up, which didn't just influence Renee, but also the surrealists to come. Mm. The objects that DeKirko used, the surrealists saw as symbols or fetishes. And the way that DeKirko arranged his compositions, it's almost like an early version of Photoshop. Yeah, he's editing, he's enlarging, mm-hmm. he's skewing, cropping, tur- he's turning up the contrast, too. All, all of the things you would do in Photoshop. <laughs> <laughs> he is combining irrelevant elements to create this whole new world, mm. a DeKirko world. Yeah, so what I took away from this was, first of all, Daddy DeKirko. Wait, what? I daddy didn't say that. I didn't say Daddy He's the DeKirko. surrealist daddy. No, I didn't say... The surrealist say, no. looked up to him. He's like the daddy of the surrealist. He's the surrealist. He's Daddy DeKirko. Uh, okay, I guess maybe in that sense that could work, yeah. but I don't like it. You don't like it? Why? No me gusta. I just don't like you don't how like... it sounds. Okay. No me gusta la palabra daddy. Okay, I well, da- like to each their own. No me gusta. Daddy DeKirko. The public squares that are normally filled with traffic, people, locals, and tourists alike, mm-hmm. they're all gone now. They're gone. They're gone. Yeah. Okay. There are no kids, no dogs, no street musicians, mm. no merchants selling tchotchkes, nothing. Not even pigeons, Russell. Okay. I wasn't asking about uh, pigeons, but okay. you know, maybe there's a giant one uh, pinned to the wall. Maybe. So this work he made, which he called metaphysical art, was short-lived. He stopped painting this way by the mm-hmm. end of World War One. He totally turned it around and went hard into the more classical work. Okay. And he brushed this metaphysical work to the side. Okay, so it's kind of like when you find your daddy was in some like cool 1960s Krautrock band. What the hell is Krautrock? You know, you're accidentally flipping through his LPs and you, you pick it up and you're like, oh, kind of looks like my daddy. Oh my God. Turn it over on the backside. He's like, he's like the the synthesizer cello player (laughs) you know he's feeding a cello into a synthesizer making wacky beats making 20 minute songs okay and and you start listening to it and all of a sudden your daddy runs and he's so he's furious he's furious with you because he's just some boring ass accountant now he's like put that away son and then it all makes sense because this is why he never listened to david bowie he always turns off david bowie (gasps) what david yeah you know i don't know david bowie ruined yeah trying to relate to this this experience that isn't mine david bowie ruined your daddy's (laughs) life Thank you to musician Patrick Kilpatrick for letting us use the song Fauna and Fowl from his new album, Kilpatrick Volume 1, like K-I-L-L Patrick Volume 1, <laughs> uh, made from 100% recycled sound. It's a really awesome album. I've listened to it about a dozen times now. He actually sent us the the actual CD, which actual was CD. great. It's available on his Bandcamp page for Name Your Own Price, so go out and grab it, support the work. We will link it in the episode description. Now, Stephanie, let's get back to Renee. Let's mm-hmm. get back to Renee yeah. and his daddy. No. So, Stephanie. Yes. Listeners, we are 400 miles away from Brussels. And it's about the time that Renee was going to art school. Mm-hmm. And we're in Nantes, France. Okay. A Monsieur André Breton. <laughs> okay. Do you remember him? Oui, oui. Oui, oui. He's shown up in quite a few episodes. Quite a few episodes. At this point. Yeah, that's right. Uh, <laughs> part yeah. of the art slice-averse. The art slice-averse. He, he has something to do with surrealism. Anyway, <laughs> he was working during the war in a military neurological hospital. 
Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Up until this point, he was studying medicine. Really? Yeah, specifically mental illness. It's all making sense now. <laughs> starting, starting to put the pieces together. Okay. So he had observed how mental patients were basically locked up behind hospital walls, and he had direct experiences with the patients day in, day out, and he saw these patients, many of them as brilliant, because they live in this different reality where our societal conventions don't apply. Then he saw firsthand how mental and physical injuries changed these wounded soldiers. And that would make him question why we hold people to societal standards at all when the quote-unquote mentally healthy were engaging in a war, right? That's fucked up. So flash forward, Breton is inspired by, by all of this. And when he gets out, he meets a lot of people. He mingles with the Dadaists. He's inspired by Daddy DeKiriko's artwork, oh, like no. we said. <laughs> no, no, no. No daddy. No yeah. daddy. And just get used to it. Okay. At the same time, the psychoanalysis <laughs> techniques and teachings of the Austrian neurologist Sigmund Freud, who actually invented psychoanalysis, were becoming more and more accessible to the public. And it's the painter Max Ernst, who, if you recall, listeners, was LC's partner, who first introduces Breton to Freud's theories of the unconsciousness that had yet to be translated into French. So he was actually reading it to him. Basically. Wow. Yeah. Oh, that's sweet. Like a bedtime yeah. story. Well, yeah, tuck him in, <laughs> tuck his little feet in. Breton, he was wee wee. Because dreams. By 1924, the official Surrealist Manifesto is penned by Breton. The goal being to resolve the previously contradictory conditions of dreams Mm -hmm. and reality into an absolute reality, Stephanie. That's part of the quote. A super reality. (laughs) Stephanie, he actually calls you out there. So, Or surreality. In other words, it was meant to free the mind from all things rational. It was a revolution of the mind, man. Yeah. The Surrealist saw the unconscious as his pool for creative energy. Primal instinctual drives that couldn't be repressed by societal norms of the waking life. Right. They, like Freud, use symbolism found in dreams, often revolving around sex and fetish, especially a cis male-centered vision of sex, as symbols like Daddy DeKiriko used, (laughs) became fetish (laughs) objects to the surrealists which stood in for fears, sexual desires, primal violence, and the results were these unnerving, illogical artworks mixing the strange with the normal every day. And surrealists, they weren't one medium or type of artist. There were poets, filmmakers, photographers, sculptors, painters. And while Breton was seen as the leader of the Surrealist LLC, (laughs) there were other surrealist groups that popped up everywhere. The only similarity being that they are all trying to dive into the subconscious. To do this, Breton championed those automatic drawing techniques that Defem would use, but not in an occultic way. He believed these came from the subconscious and could be used to unlock the unconscious for creative use. So many of the Surrealists would take that a step further. They would utilize the collage and montage aesthetic that they learned from Daddy de Kiriko, and then they would also do automatic techniques like frittage, not that frittage, you dirty birds, uh, grittage, echoblessure, fumage, decalcomania, and other transfer techniques. In their work as a source of texture, with which to find hidden imagery. Unlike psychoanalysis, Surrealist goal was basically the opposite. They wanted to disrupt reality and allow abnormality of unconscious desire to be 
a vehicle of revolution. Stephanie, maybe... Stop. Steph. What? Maybe we should, should we just give them what they want? What? Am I just going to do a pantry on all of them? Yeah, I mean... Really? Is that what you want? Es lo que quieren? Okay, I guess we'll just talk about all of them. That's fine. The Surrealists used a variety of transfer methods to use as a base or texture on which to build up atmospheric textures to then use in more fully rendered paintings. Artists today still use a lot of these techniques, sometimes without understanding the roots. Remedios Varro, while we consider her more of a magical realist, she did experiments with eclaboussure, which is where an artist will drip, spill, or splash turpentine on top of wet oil paint. The turpentine is then mopped up with a rag, and only the unaffected oil paint remains on the surface. Usually the results are fragmented pieces of fully painted surfaces. Varro also used fumage, which she was taught by Wolfgang Palin, a fellow surrealist, who utilized this technique more frequently. Here, a canvas is held near the smoke of a candle or lamp, and then the artist will draw with the heat and residual smoke, leaving an unpredictable mark that gradiates from where the heat is hottest to where it dissipates. Max Ernst used a variety of texture-producing techniques like decalcomania, portage, and grattage that he would use for texture throughout his work. Decalcomania is similar to eclaboussure in that the texture is produced by removing portions of the wet oil paint. But instead of turpentine, paper, foil, or any other absorbent or abrasive material is placed on the wet oil paint and then removed. Retage is when wet oil paint is actively scraped off the canvas by a variety of instruments, like a hairbrush, twigs, a palette knife. You can be as creative as you want to be. In frittage, the canvas or piece of paper is placed on a textured surface, and by rubbing or painting over the texture, the effect is transferred over. In Ernst's case, he was enamored by his studio's floorboards as they were old and weathered. For surrealists, this offered an opportunity to find hidden imagery or textures, almost like a Rorschach test, which coincidentally was being tested around the same time that the surrealists began. Thank you, Stephanie, for that Art Slice Pantry entry. I believe our little rambunctious ponchimons have been satiated once again. Honestly, Stephanie? Just say it. They're kind of being brats today. Yeah, absolutely. But we love them. Yes, we do. I I don't see Bean here, though. Yeah, they came at me earlier. I don't know if you saw that part. They were, they were the one. That's the last time I saw them. Usually they're right on top. They're probably in the pile. All right, well, let's just, let's just not wake them. No. Let's get back to Renee. They're nice and satiated. Let's go. In 1925, the Surrealist Manifesto made its way to Brussels. Renée finds an affinity with Breton's vision. So Renée and a group of artists decide to start their own Surrealist band. The next year, he had his first solo show in Brussels, which included The Lost Jockey, which is a collage that he regarded as his first Surrealist work. Mm. While it's kind of awkward, awkward, you can see signs of what would become part of his visual vocabulary, including the weird trees. Yeah. We have some curtains on either side that makes it look like a stage. Does that sound familiar? Yeah, it's not a a very good painting, folks. Well, it turns out that Brussels was not ready for the budding surrealist, and his debut show was actually met with a lot of negative press. Yeah. They weren't ready. They weren't ready for that. Or just wasn't that good. Well, either it's way. Just, it not good uh, okay, that's fine. It, it's his first surrealist work. It's his first okay. official surrealist work. We don't know if there it's were bad. studies. Okay, all right, whatever. It's bad piece. He moves on. Renee was like, fuck this Brussels. Bye. I'll take my waffles to go. Thank you. 
So Renee, with his waffles and art supplies in tow, catches the next train to Paris. He's in a new city, new life, new art circles where he meets and befriends the Paris Surrealists. His work starts to look a lot like the other surrealists. I mean, I actually kind of like these paintings. They're messy. Yeah. They're ugly. But he's, you know, he's working towards <laughs> He's something. working through yeah, something. I like that. I like to see some struggle. Yeah. But let's go through some of the things we see here. We see a two by four in a tuxedo. A plank of wood in a tuxedo. Yeah. Yes. Right. We see trees that are upside down or have legs or, or flipped. Don't forget about the floating turtle pinata. The floating turtle <laughs> pinatas, of course. We see some leg people. Yeah. Kind of, why yeah. not? They don't have torsos. They're just legs. Yeah. Yeah. Detached heads. Lots of those. I mean, either the full head, sometimes just the like scalp and ears. Like a little helmet. (laughs) A lot of breasts. A lot of, yeah, a lot of breasts, some pubises. (laughs) Some, some wood oh gray God. naked ladies. Too many. It takes him about three years, but he eventually starts to refine his compositions and distill the checklist down to something different. <laughs> and a turning point turning in his... Pipe. Oh, yes. Yes. We, we'll get to that. Turning pipe. You, you get it? I do. Okay. <laughs> Listeners, don't worry. We'll get to that. It was during this time he painted one of his most famous pieces called mm. The Treachery of Images from 1929. Listeners, I'm sure... All of you know this image, even if you didn't realize it was Renee's. So in The Treachery of Images, he paints a very realistic-looking pipe with cursive text reading... (laughs) Excuse me, what was that? This is not a pipe. Did you not trust my French skills? Okay. Slower this time. In case I missed it the first time. All right, listeners, did you catch that? Yep. We can all learn how to say this together, because I didn't already know how to say it. Let's say it together. Okay, you ready? One... Yep, Two. Here we go. Three. Sissian Nesazum Peep. No. Okay. If you look at it, it's kind of boring, actually. There's not much to it. Mm. It's it's just a brown pipe against a pale yellow background with some text. Big deal, right? Well, actually, yes, it is a big deal. Mm. This work was revolutionary for its time because it questioned the authority of both images and words through painting and art. Do you believe everything you see and read? Like, yes, it's a pipe, but it's not yeah, an actual it's not pipe. A pipe. It's a painting of but a pipe. But it is a pipe. It's a painting of a pipe. But it's not a pipe. It's an image of a pipe. <laughs> Images can be deceiving, right? They can be treacherous. Can be tre- oh, 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 oh. This is also the first time Agreed is redirecting the viewer, mm-hmm. making them interact with the painting like a puzzle. It's less about him showing you what his interpretation of, quote unquote, the subconscious yeah, is, right? Right. And he doesn't come back to using text very often in his work. But that mm. idea that images can be deceiving is yep. something that he uses for the rest of his life. He takes it back to his childhood. He's thinking about what he learned from the Paris Surrealists, what he's learned from Dicure. Daddy Dicker. But no, uh, no. So (laughs) he's also thinking about theater. Remember those little theater Mm. sets that he built as a child? Okay. I love the comparison to theater because Renee's work, I think it sits in this place between the real and not real. And also it makes sense with all the curtains he uses, right? Literally. Yeah. He's inspired by how a theater uses physical tricks, Mm. not through editing or CGI, but instead using trap doors closing curtains, lighting, false windows and doorways, and then like maybe even literally having characters exiting stage left, all to keep the audience in suspension. (laughs) 
One part of Renee's childhood that we have not yet mentioned was his mother. We left it lurking behind a floating apple, Stephanie. All right. So a whole bunch of floating apples. Like they all started to lift from the grocery store aisle. Sucks for the employee that has to clean that up. All right. We got to catch him, actually. That's why they give you the net. Oh, okay. Yeah. This is a surrealist setup you're giving me here. Okay. All right. So knowing about Renee's mother helps us put the puzzle pieces together, if you will. Listeners, it's going to get a little rough here for a second. If you are sensitive to that, please skip ahead about 60 seconds. So Renee's mom, Regina, suffered from severe depression, so much so that she attempted to drown herself by throwing herself into Mm -hmm. a nearby river on several different occasions. As a society, our understanding of mental illness was seriously lacking, to say the least, and honestly, it still is to this day. So not knowing how to handle his wife's suicide attempts, Renee's dad, Leopold, locked her in a room every night to keep her from escaping. Oh my God. It's so heartbreaking. This was a profoundly traumatic experience for young Renee, who was only 13 at the time, to watch his family struggle to help her manage an illness she likely didn't understand herself. Eventually, Regina breaks out of the room and she goes missing for a couple of weeks. Her body is eventually found, washed up on the river shore, her face covered by her nightgown. And we're not sure if this is lore, but supposedly young Renee was present for this. Forget all of the blowback from just losing a parent in such a tragic way. But to then see people behave a certain way towards Mm. him, like condolences for him and his family, or on the other side of it, just probably being gossiped about. He also knew what led to his mother's suicide. I mean, this little town of Lacines probably saw her every day as that that hat maker, right? Okay, yeah. But he saw what his family projected as a normal family, like what they mm-hmm. showed to society. But behind behind those curtains, like if you want to use the, the idea of theater, theater again, behind the stage, he saw, you know, what it was really like. Renee learned a painful lesson, which is that most things are out of our control and there isn't always an explanation for why things happen to us, good or otherwise. It's often random and nothing is guaranteed. So don't trust what you see. This distrust in reality Mm. shows up in his works throughout his career. But the one that we have chosen today, while it is lesser known, demonstrates the same idea. So, listeners, it's time to get into Renee's The Unexpected Answer, Oil on Canvas from 1933. And so your own loop stops and resets. You count. One Mississippi, two Mississippi, three Mississippi, four, five, six, seven, eight. 9, 11, 12. When you're done counting, they skip and reset to their beginning point, to their beginning point. Every shadow moves in choreographic sync. You reach for the hotel room door, a wooden door, not wallpaper. In the center of the door, there's a huge chunk missing, and the void is an unusual shape. You can't see much on either side of the doorframe, Just some solid brown wallpaper and wooden molding to match the door. The wooden floorboards stretch past the threshold until they disappear into the shadows beyond the void. You can suddenly taste the hotel coffee again. Suddenly, you long for the sunshine you experienced on the terrace. But instead, you are in front of this door that will lead to a dark place. There are no signs as to what this room holds nor if you are or aren't allowed to enter. 
Nothing invites you in, yet nothing, as far as we can see, is holding you back. Technically speaking, there are two ways to enter, but how do you enter? Is it easier to turn the knob and step into the room as expected, or instead contort your body to fit through the oddly shaped void, if it's even possible? Or do you stay in place, forever wondering what's beyond? Stephanie, we're here. We're in front of the Art Slice Museum on top of the Art Slice Hilltop, surrounded by the Candy and Condom Moat. It's been a while since we've been here because last episode you wouldn't let me do it. What? Yeah, you wouldn't let me do it, but we're here. We're finally here. We snatched Renee Magritte's The Unexpected Answer in Leather Daddy to Kiriko's The Song of Love. <laughs> That's right. He's been upgraded to leather now. Okay. Next is Platinum. Oh. <laughs> okay. To get here, we had to dodge geometric artichokes, Mm. sneak past the guardian statue busts. We had to run from long shadow to long shadow to hide from the swarming floating apples. From the grocery store. Finally, we found ourselves atop a sentient Fata Morgana columned tower that carried us away like the Flying Dutchman to the shores of Stephanie La Isla de Artslies. Yes, fucking finally. (laughs) Where we found ourselves at the ethically gold-plated, free-range, holographic doorways of the Arts Lacey Museum. (laughs) So let's lean these two paintings against the doors and discuss. All right, let's do it. There are actually... Still a little mad at you, though, for not letting me do the Arts Lacey Museum last episode, but that's okay. I love you. It's going to be fine. Okay. It's going to be fine. Yeah, yeah. fine for you. So there are actually a lot of similarities between these two paintings. Mm -hmm. But first, I wanted to bring up the fact that when we were writing this episode, you were having a really hard time admitting that... Renee was a surrealist. Okay, so you're cornering me here, huh? You caught me. <laughs> I struggle with classifying his work as a stereotypical surrealist work. That doesn't mean I don't think he's necessarily part of the surrealists. Okay. All right? All right. But yeah, you're right. <laughs> he was a Belgian surrealist, so he broke the formula of the French surrealists who get all the yeah, attention. Oui, oui. But it's apples and oranges. It's crepes and waffles, if you will. I love I love breakfast food. Can you okay. tell? All right. So anyway, actually, <laughs> if you remember, listeners, we viewed Romedios Varro's work in a very similar way as far as being adjacent to the surrealists, mm-hmm. but not quite a surrealist. Right. So she was into psychoanalysis. Mm -hmm. She used some of the same automatic techniques to build up texture in her work Mm -hmm. as the surrealist used. But it doesn't seem like her work is from the subconscious. It feels more like it's inspired by real events, feels more like a story being told. Yes, right. Which is why I think many classify her, rightfully so, as a magical realist. And look, so the surrealists weren't one unified thing. And classifications are slippery anyway. They're they're (laughs) super slippery. But the surrealism that we know the best, it looks like they took Freud's primal scene, like really literally, right? Yeah. So (laughs) with Renee and DiCurico, no, there are a lot of illogical elements that don't point to the subconscious or dreams, but I'm thinking of Edward Munch's paintings now. Mm. They are much more like the dreams that I have, Edward's work. Um, My dreams are fuzzy, (laughs) right? They're not, they're not clear. Um, yeah, so help you, me. You, you like, they feel more than you see, basically. Yes. They're less detailed, but more feelings. Yeah, gotcha. Renee is all detail. Yes. Daddy's Moonk... de Kiriko is all detail, too. Okay. Well, <laughs> Moonk is all feels, 
with a Z. So MOOC reminds me much more of the subconscious on canvas. Anxieties, fears, repression, sex, all those human emotions that we stuff down inside of us. (laughs) And Renee is different because his work requires participation, like from somebody looking at it. Mm -hmm. It requires a feedback loop with the audience. He doesn't seem concerned with what the surrealists were concerned with. He is giving you a visual riddle for you to decipher using mood, using symbols, and honestly using a lot of the tropes that the surrealists used, but in a very, very different way. Very different way. I agree that when it comes to the work that he is best known for, he is more inspired by the atmosphere, right? The (laughs) shtimun that Dekirko made during his medical... During his medical, physical, metaphysical Medical, physical phase. Oh my God, okay. Why is it so hard? During his metaphysical period. So, yeah, I mean, what the Surrealists took from Daddy DeKiriko were symbols or, like, fetish objects, right? So the the reoccurring trains in his work, Mm -hmm. the reoccurring statues. Rene was just as inspired by Daddy DeKiriko, but it was totally influenced by the other aspects of Daddy DeKiriko's work, like the mood, the sort of eeriness. Are they siblings from another mother? Is that that a saying? Brother from another mother? Siblings from another mother? No. Okay. I didn't know. So... Or they don't have the same mother. But he's the daddy to cure. I'm just confused I, in the narrative of the, of the daddy to cure. I was Kiriko. trying to play with you and it didn't work Look, out. Look, he can be a mommy to Kiriko too. I'm fine with that. Um, I just didn't believe in it in the first place. That's why it's not coming out okay. like genuine. Well, I'm just confused now. But <laughs> okay. Go, go on. Yes. All right. So we see Renee's unique perspective in the unexpected answer. Mm. You can still see a lot of the same symbols in his work pre-pipe, but it's <laughs> it's a different method of communication now. Yeah, it's, it's more theatrical. It's using mood lighting, stage tricks. It's showing that he is skeptical of reality. Just like Daddy DeKiriko, like, it's, it's like a theater set. You know it's a facade as a viewer, but you also, you also don't know it's a facade, right? You know he's trying to trick you, but also you're being tricked by him. I can, I can definitely see that. There's this psychological darkness to Renee's work. Like there is in DeKiriko's work, something is intentionally hidden from us. Something is lurking off to the side. With both artists, you have to make your way carefully, slowly through the painting. Mm-hmm. I feel like I have stumbled into scenes like DeKiriko's in real Daddy life DeKiriko, yeah. where a place was completely empty of people. Mm. For example, an empty Italian piazza in the middle of the day. Okay. And it was uncomfortable and weird. So in a way, I connect to his works because I have felt that feeling, right? Even if there wasn't a giant glove there. Well, maybe there was. Yeah. And it was behind a building. And yeah. I just like, I didn't see it. But because, <laughs> because one aspect of it I know is possible, I then have to entertain the possibility that the other aspect of the painting are possible. Mm. Or in Renee's case, there's a huge hole in the door. (laughs) There aren't any like frayed edges. So is this a custom door? (laughs) The reason why we're even sitting here and questioning all these little decisions that these artists made is because you believe in their world, right? And you know you're being tricked, but you're captivated by it like a Mm. good movie. Both Renee Magritte and... Daddy de Kiriko in a matter-of-fact way. Their style is intentionally boring. (laughs) Like, we don't see brushstrokes, not even a little bit of abstraction. Mm -hmm. They are painting things how they quote-unquote should look, right? Which is what keeps you in a constant state of questioning what is going on in these paintings.
paintings. So, Edward Munch. Showing up again. I know. Imagine <laughs> if these two painted like Munch. That would work against this type yep. of work. With Munch, you already know it's not real because of the way he is painting stylistically. It would overshadow the content. Right. Totally. And they want you to question that reality mm-hmm. that they're presenting to you. It actually makes me think of the writer Haruki Murakame. Oh, yeah. His books are at the same time weird <laughs> and almost boring, right? Yeah. So he uses this detached affect. So the whole time you buy into, but you also question this weird world of his. It keeps you in this like constant state of flux. And that's funny because Rene actually described himself as a writer, but using painting for words. He <laughs> and DeKirico... Daddy DeKirico, please. No. Present us with seemingly random puzzles, but nothing is random in art, even if the artists themselves don't know why they chose what they chose. Every work of art is a record of decisions. The first read here is there is this weird hole in the door. Did the door not work? Did or someone grab a, a jigsaw and just go crazy on it? But then you, you're you like, okay, it looks like the door actually went nowhere. Did something come from nowhere? And we're not sure if the action has happened, is happening, or is about to happen. There are so many variables. Yeah. And so it leaves us in a middle space of not knowing what's real, like kind of like a haunted house, mm-hmm. but it's not a movie and it's not a haunted house. Like it's a painting. Yeah. And you and you're in suspension. Right. And I think that is what's so great about the name of Renee's painting, The Unexpected Answer. Mm-hmm. We all have expectations, whether we know it or not, when we look at a work. My expectation for Renee was blank. Insert anything. Uh, yeah, here. <laughs> listeners, insert your own expectations here. <laughs> he did not give me my expectation. Mm-hmm. He didn't give you your expectation. Sure didn't. In this work, he gave me something that brought up more questions than it answered. And that was the answer. That's a good mystery. But sometimes you're better for not getting what you expect. I want to ask you, tables have turned. We're on an island now. We're on an island now. Okay. Okay. Tables have turned. You tell us, are we keeping this DeKirico and Renee in the Art Slice Museum? Yes to Renee. (laughs) Yes with some asterisk. Okay. To Daddy DeKirico. Renee McGree, let me back up. I like his early work. I like his early surrealist work that he made in Paris. I really sometimes like to see an artist struggle. Mm -hmm. And he struggles in those works a lot. (laughs) They're not very (laughs) good. And he's trying to paint himself out of it, right? And then there's his later works. So Time Transfixed. Oh, The Train. Yeah, The Train train Coming Out of the Fireplace. fireplace. It actually has like a way better name in French. Like he actually wasn't happy with the English translation. Oh, okay. What? 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 Duration Stabbed. Duration Stabbed. Rough translation, I guess. I don't know. Somebody thought it was too dramatic, I guess. Yeah. So they were like, no, it's transfixed. Those dramatic French Renee, people. Yeah. Okay, we're in America now, all right, Renee. Maybe button it <laughs> up a little bit, all right? <laughs> no. Okay. His later work, I feel like it almost gives away too much. Kind of the opposite, right? More answers than questions. Yeah, I you can know, see that. So you have the early work, which is a little bit messy, a little bit raw, not <laughs> quite there yet. And then you have the later work, which is maybe a little bit too refined. That middle ground, that's I know, that's, that's like the goal, that's like the Goldilocks zone. You think this painting is Goldilocks zone? I think it's Goldilocks zone. Okay. Well, I'm just saying I think there needs to be more Renee with this piece. Mm. I just think his work is so rich, and this is just a small iteration of it. Mm. This is bare bones Magritte. And if we're gonna introduce people to Magritte, then this is a good one, but there's so much more to him. I think there could be other paintings with this one to give it more context. I feel the same way about Daddy DeKirico, but I I actually disagree with you about Renee here. Okay. Okay. I think that this particular piece, like a lot of the work from his his Goldilocks zone... 
um, can stand on its own. And what I like about this piece is that it doesn't quite look right. <laughs> right. If you look at it, yeah. after you look at the giant hole in the door, you start to notice some things are off. So, like, the wood grain doesn't look correct. The right. molding is, it's like a little too much molding. It's like, is this <laughs> what this actually high. looks like? You know? It's not. Not if you start to look a little carefully. Yeah. So it's just a stage. Right. This one does what his most famous piece, The Treachery of Images, does. But it's, oh. you know, he doesn't use text. He's he's showing you through imagery without using the text. That's why I think it's so successful. That's why I wanted the museum. I actually think it can stand alone. Okay. I think this is the Rene piece that actually needs the least context hmm that's interesting so okay all right all right you know what i do want this in the museum you bet you're backtracking now i talk myself out of it i am not backtracking i am evolving you're evolving i'm evolving like hilma no i'm not gonna compare myself to hilma okay listen stephanie is comparing herself to hilma she's got a little halo above her head I'm not. I do agree with you. I don't think many people would think that this is a quintessential Magritte painting. Well, but that's not what Art Slice is. Art Slice is the weirdo things that get overlooked, right? And this is one of them, this piece by Rene. I need to remind myself and be like, Steph, this is not a museum, okay? (laughs) No, it is. This is anti-museum. Art Slice museum. Art Slice anti-museum. We have nap pots, for God's sakes. Right, and everything's free. Yeah. Um, But now, to Kiriko, I want this one in Art Slice because this work, The Song of Love, inspired Renee, and Renee, in turn, has inspired generations of artists like Jasper Johns. Mark Rothko is a huge fan. That's right. Uh, Stupid fucking Jeff Koons is a huge fan. He actually owns a couple pieces because he's a fucking rich asshole who doesn't pay his employees well and doesn't let them unionize. And then there are all these, like, filmmakers that you wouldn't even think of. And, I mean, David Lynch is probably the most obvious one here. Like, David Lynch borrows a lot from Magritte. Right. And that's that's what I'm saying about Renee is that the Song of Love was so powerful to Mm. him. Mind you, he saw in a small, probably black and white reproduction. Like, that's huge. And we get to have it here in our art slice of verse. We get to have it Mm. in color, full size. Hell yeah. Yeah. For us. Maybe we could put some, like, if we're going to put it in the museum, maybe we could put, like, a, you know, a little swing door and, like, a fake door, a faux door in front of it, a faux museum wall in front of it where we have a tiny little reproduction of it. Black and white. Got to get up close. And if you actually get up close, you sit there for the right amount of time. Um, What happens? You get rewarded. It opens up. Love it. Daddy to Kiriko. He took me by surprise. Okay, yeah. This piece took me by surprise. I already forgot the name of it. The Summer of Love. (laughs) I just want to call it The Summer of Love, which I think is a song. I remember (laughs) you saying you always liked his work, but the only work that I'd really seen was the one that we have in our hometown museum. No. It's kind of, it's kind of, it's kind of, but... I feel like now that I've seen this piece and I've seen a greater variety of his work, yeah, I have more context for this world that he's creating. That's why I said with an asterisk, they don't live on their own. They need a few of each other for you to fully understand them. Okay. With the Song of Love, you only get one perspective of his world. Mm, right. But if there were like one, two, three, four paintings, you could see more of the world they belong to. And then running into a giant sculpture and a glove on a pinned wall is way more eerie at that point. I can see that. I respect that. I think it gives that world more of a tangible reality. These two artists reflected reality back to us, like with some minor adjustments, right? Small details that may go unnoticed. 
they have manipulated the space on the canvas to make us react a certain way. Hmm. Like you said earlier, Russell, these two artists require participation from the viewer, like a puzzle. Their paintings have no effect on us if we don't participate. It only works if we play along. (laughs) Well, listeners, every day we live our lives in our homes, in our schools, in the workplace, on our phones. Whether we know it or not, we are participating in someone else's composition. (laughs) Every single space we exist in has been designed to make us behave and feel a certain way. I mean, good or bad, right? So think about TikTok, think about churches, think about graveyards, public benches. None of that was an accident, right? Right, right. Renee and especially Daddy DeKiriko and the Surrealists all knew this and they all reacted to it. Well, you can't have Renee Magritte without Giorgio DeKiriko. I don't think we would have covered Daddy DeKiriko had we not... (laughs) You know, just realized, like, you have to have it. In order to talk about Renee, you got to talk about his daddy. No, no daddy. It's his daddy. No, it's his daddy, daddy. It's his daddy. daddy. So that's going to do it for us today, listeners. Remember to follow us on all the things, share the show with a friend, leave a five-star written review on your pod player of choice, and send us an email. We love to hear about what you thought of the work. Hey, you know what, Russell? Yeah, what? I still don't see Bean anywhere. Still? Mm-mm. Okay. Um, well, maybe they got outside. Maybe it'll turn up. Okay. Okay. And listeners, remember, your kid could not have painted that. Bye. Bye.